Chapter Three, Part One of Thirty Years a Slave From Bondage to Freedom The Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Thirty Years a Slave from bondage to freedom the institution of slavery as seen on the plantation and in the home of the planter by lewis hughes chapter three part one slavery and the war of the rebellion beginning of the war i remember well when abraham lincoln was elected boss and the madam had been reading the papers when he broke out with the exclamation, The very idea of electing an old rail-splitter to the Presidency of the United States. Well, he'll never take his seat. When Lincoln was inaugurated, Boss, Old Master Jack, and a great company of men met at our house to discuss the matter, and they were wild with excitement. Was not this excitement an admission that their confidence in their ability to whip the Yankees five or six to one was not so strong as they pretended the war had been talked of for some time but at last it came when the rebels fired upon fort sumter then great excitement arose the next day when i drove boss to town he went into the store of one williams a merchant and when he came out he stepped to the carriage and said what do you think old abraham lincoln has called for four hundred thousand men to come to washington immediately well let them come we will make a breakfast of them i can whip a half dozen yankees with my pocket knife this was the chief topic everywhere soon after this boss bought himself a six-shooter i had to mold the bullets for him and every afternoon he would go out to practice by his direction i fixed a large piece of white paper on the back fence and in the centre of it put a large black dot at this mark he would fire away expecting to hit it but he did not succeed well he would sometimes miss the fence entirely the ball going out into the woods beyond each time he would shoot i would have to run down to the fence to see how near he came to the mark when he came very near to it within an inch or so he would say laughingly ah i would have got him that time meaning a yankee soldier there was something very ludicrous in this pistol practice of a man who boasted that he could whip half a dozen yankees with a jackknife every day for a month this business so tiresome to me went on boss was very brave until it came time for him to go to war when his courage oozed out and he sent a substitute he remaining at home as a home guard one day when i came back with the papers from the city the house was soon ringing with cries of victory boss said why that was a great battle at bull run if our men had only known at first what they afterwards found out they would have wiped all the yankees out and succeeded in taking washington petty disrespect to the emblem of the union right after the bombardment of fort sumter 
they brought to Memphis the Union flag that floated over the fort. There was a great jubilee in celebration of this. Portions of the flag, no larger than a half dollar in paper money, were given out to the wealthy people, and these evidences of their treason were long preserved as precious treasures. Boss had one of these pieces which he kept a long time, but as the rebel cause waned, these reminders of its beginning were less and less seen, and if any of them are now in existence, it is not likely that their possessors will take any pride in exposing them to view. As the war continued, we would, now and then, hear of some slave of our neighborhood running away to the Yankees. It was common when the message of a Union victory came to see the slaves whispering to each other, We will be free. I tried to catch everything I could about the war. I was so eager for the success of the Union cause. These things went on until... Note At this point the text ends. End of note The Battle of Shiloh April 9, 1862 Boss came hurrying in one morning right after breakfast, calling to me, Lou? Lou, come. We have a great victory. I want to go up and carry the boy something to eat. I want you and Matilda to get something ready as quickly as you can. A barrel of flour was rolled into the kitchen, and my wife and I pitched in to work. Biscuit, bread, hoe-cake, ham, tongue, all kinds of meat and bread were rapidly cooked, and, though the task was a heavy one for my wife and me, we worked steadily, and about five o'clock in the afternoon the things were ready. One of the large baskets used to hold cotton was packed full these provisions. Our limbs ached from the strain of the work, for we had little help. One reason for the anxiety of the boss for the preparation of this provision for the soldiers was that he knew so many in one of the companies, which was known as the Como Avengers, and he had a son, a nephew, and a brother of his wife connected with it, the latter a major on General Martin's staff. On the following morning I got up early and hurried with my work to get through, as I had to go to the post office. Madam hurried me off, as she expected a letter from her husband, who had promised to write, at the earliest moment, of their friends and relatives. I rushed into the city, at full speed, got some letters and a morning paper, and, returning as rapidly as possible, gave them to her. She grasped them eagerly, and commenced reading the paper. In a short time I heard her calling me to come to her. I went in and she said in great excitement, "'Lewis, we want to have you drive us into town to see the Yankee prisoners who are coming through at noon from Shiloh.' I went and told Madison to hitch up as soon as he could. In the meantime I got myself ready, and it was not long before we were off for the city. The madam was accompanied by a friend of hers, a Mrs. Oliver. We were at the station in plenty of time, about twelve o'clock the train from Shiloh drew into the station, but the prisoners that were reported to be on board were missing. It proved to be a false report. While they were looking for the prisoners, Mrs. Oliver saw Jack, the servant of Edward McGee, brother of Madam. 
"'Oh, look,' said Mrs. Oliver. "'There is Edward's Jack. Lou, run and call him.' In a minute I was off the carriage, leaving the reins in Madame's hands. Jack came up to the carriage, and the women began to question him. "'Where's your master, Ed?' asked both of them. "'He is in the car, missus. He is shot in the ankle,' said Jack. In a minute the women were crying. "'I was going to get a hack,' said Jack. "'To—' "'No, no,' said both of them. "'Go, Lou, and help Jack to bring him to our carriage. You can drive him more steadily than the hack man.' Jack and I went to the car and helped him out, and after some effort got him into our carriage. Then I went and got a livery hack to take the women and his baggage home. When we reached home, we found there old Mrs. Jack McGee, mother of the madam, Mrs. Charles Dandridge, Mrs. Farrington, sisters of madam, and Fanny, a colored woman, Edward's housekeeper and mistress, a wife in all but name. All of these had come to hear the news of the great battle, for all had near relatives in it. Mrs. Jack McGee and Mrs. Dr. Charles Dandridge had each a son in the terrible conflict. MORNING IN MASTER'S FAMILY In the afternoon, when all were seated in the library reading, and I was in the dining-room finishing up my work, I happened to look out of the window and saw a messenger coming up the graveled walk. I went out to meet him. "'Telegram for Mrs. McGee,' he said. I took it to her, and, reading it without a word, she passed it to the next member of the family and so it was passed around until all had read it except Mrs. Dandridge. When it was handed to her, I saw at a glance that it contained for her the most sorrowful tidings. As she read, she became livid, and when she had finished, she covered her face with her handkerchief, giving a great heavy sob. By this time the whole family was crying and screaming, "'Oh, our Mac is killed!' Ma's Mac is killed, was echoed by the servants, in tones of heartfelt sorrow, for he was an exceptional young man. Everyone loved him, both whites and blacks. The affection of the slaves for him bordered on reverence, and this was true not alone of his father's slaves, but of all those who knew him. This telegram was from Boss, and announced that he would be home the next day with the remains. Mrs. Farrington at once wrote to old Master Jack and to Dr. Dandridge, telling them of Mac's death and to come at once. After I mailed those letters, nothing unusual happened during the afternoon, and the house was wrapped in silence and gloom. On the following morning I went for the mail as usual, but there was nothing new. At noon the remains of the much-loved young man arrived at our station, accompanied by Boss and Dr. Henry Dandridge, brother of the father of the deceased, who was a surgeon in the rebel army. I went to the station with another servant to assist in bringing the body to the house. We carried it into the back parlor, and after all had been made ready we proceeded to wash and dress it. He had lain on the battlefield two days before he was found, and his face was black as a piece of coal. But Dr. Henry Dandridge, with his ready tact, suggested the idea of painting it. I was there to assist in whatever way they needed me, 
after the body was all dressed and the face painted cheeks tinted with a rosy hue to appear as he always did in life the look was natural and handsome we were all the afternoon employed in this sad work and it was not until late in the evening that his father and mother came down to view the body for the first time i remember as they came down the broad stairs together the sorrow-stricken yet calm look of those two people mrs dandridge was very calm her grief was too great for her to scream as the others did when they went in she stood and looked at her mac then turning to boss she said cousin eddie how brave he was he died for his country poor sorrowing misguided woman it was not for his country he died but for the perpetration of the cruel the infamous system of human slavery all the servants were allowed to come in and view the body many sad tears were shed by them some of the older slaves clasped their hands as if in mute prayer and exclaimed as they passed by the coffin he was a loving boy it seems that all his company but five or six were killed at an early hour next morning the funeral party started for the home in panola where the body of the lamented young man sacrificed to an unholy cause was buried at the close of the same day edward stayed at our house some six weeks his ankle was so slow in getting well at the end of that time he could walk with the aid of crutches and he took fanny and went home alarm of the memphis rebels not long after this the people were very much worked up over the military situation the yankees had taken nashville and had begun to bombard fort pillow the officials of the memphis and ohio railroad company became alarmed at the condition of things fearing for the safety of their stock the officers therefore set about devising some plan by which they might get the cars down on the memphis and jackson road where they imagined their property would be safe from the now terrible yankees the railroad officials at once set to work to buy the right-of-way through main street to give them the connection with the southern road named at first it was refused by the city authorities but finally the right-of-way was granted when however the railroad men began to lay the ties and rails the people grew furious some fled at once for they imagined that this act of the railroad officials indicated that the yankees must be coming pretty near boss became so excited at this time that he almost felt like going away too the family grew more and more uneasy and it was the continual talk we must get away from memphis the companies are already moving their rolling stock fearing the yankees may come at any time and destroy everything we must get away said boss speaking to the madam the family flee from memphis things continued in this way until about june eighteen sixty two the union troops had taken fort pillow we had heard the firing of cannon and did not know what it meant one morning i was in the city after the mail and i learned that a transient boat had just come down the river which had lost a part of her wheelhouse she was fired on from fort pillow sustaining this serious damage from the shot 
This increased the excitement among the people, and our folks became alarmed right away, and commenced talking of moving and running the servants away from the Yankees to a place of safety. McGee was trying for some time to get someone to take the house, that is, to live in and care for it until after the war, while the family were gone. They never thought that slavery would be abolished, and so hoped to come back again. After some search, they found a widow, a Mrs. Hancock. She was to have full charge of the house and continue keeping boarders, as she had been doing in Memphis. The vaunted courage of this man seems to have early disappeared, and his thought was chiefly devoted to getting his family and his slaves into some obscure place, as far away as possible from the Yankees, that were to be so easily whipped. We were about two weeks getting ready to leave, stowing away some of the things they did not want to move. The boss and his family, my wife and I, and all the house servants were to go to Panola, to his father's. The family went by rail, but I had to drive through in a wagon. I AM TAKEN TO BOLIVAR FARM Soon after the family all reached Master Jack's, Boss took me to his own farm in Bolivar County. This separated me for a time from my wife, for she remained with the family. I had to look after the house at the farm, attend the dining room, and, between meals, sew every day, making clothes for the hands. I could run on the machine eighteen to twenty pairs of pants a day, but two women made the buttonholes and did the basting for me, getting the goods all ready for the machine. CAPTURE OF A UNION TRADING BOAT The Yankees had made a raid through Bolivar before I came, and the excitement had not abated, as they were spreading themselves all through the state. There was a union trading boat, the Lake City, that had been successful in exchanging her goods for cotton that came from Memphis. She usually stopped at Helena, Friars Point, and other small towns, but on a trip at this time she came about fifty miles farther down the river to Carson's Landing, right at Boss's farm. She was loaded with all kinds of merchandise, sugar, tobacco, liquor, etc. She had a crew of about forty men, but they were not well prepared for a vigorous defense. The rebel soldiers stationed in the vicinity saw her as she dropped her anchor near the landing, and they determined to make an effort for her capture. They put out pickets just above our farm, and allowed no one to pass or stop to communicate with the boat. Everyone that sought to pass was held prisoner, and every precaution taken to prevent those on the boat from learning of the purposes of the rebels, knowing that the boat would land in the morning, if not informed of the danger, and then it was anticipated that they could easily make her a prize. There was a small ferry-boat behind the steamer and as the latter dropped downstream and then steamed up to the landing the former stood off for a few moments as the steamer touched shore the rebels charged on her and captured her without a struggle in the meantime the ferry-boat seeing what had happened sped away upstream the soldiers firing at her but doing little damage except the breaking of the glass in the pilot-house the rebels seeing that the ferry-boat had escaped them turned their attention to the unloading of the steamer. They sent out for help in this work, and the summons was answered by the neighbors far and near. Wagons were brought, 
two of which were from our farm, and loaded with goods, which were taken to Deer Creek, forty miles from Carson Landing. What goods they found themselves unable to carry away were packed in the warehouse. The steamer was then burned. McGee was present, and the rebel captain gave him a written statement of the affair to the effect that the residents were not responsible for it, and that this should be a protection for them against the Union forces. The officers and crew of the steamer, to the number of forty, were made prisoners, and taken to Deer Creek, the rebel headquarters of that region, and put in the jail there. The ferryboat that escaped went to Helena, Arkansas, and carried the news of the affair to the Union forces there. Boss Taken Prisoner I was told by Boss to take my stand on our veranda and keep watch on the river, and if I saw any boat coming down to let him know at once. I kept a close watch the next morning until about eight o'clock, when I saw a boat, but she had almost gone past our house before I discovered her. I ran into the house and told Boss. He ordered me to get his horse at once, which I did, and he mounted and went down to the landing as fast as he could. Upon reaching there, he was taken prisoner by the Union soldiers who had just landed from the boat. All who came near were captured. The Union soldiers went to work and transferred all the goods which the rebels had put into the warehouse from the boat which they had captured. Then, setting fire to the warehouse and the post office, they pushed off, yelling and shouting with glee. Among those captured by the Union soldiers were three other rich planters, besides Boss, all of whom were taken to Helena. After they had been there about a week, the planters offered to secure the release of the Unionists captured on the boat which the rebels had burned at Carson Landing, and who had been sent to the rebel jail at Deer Creek, if they were guaranteed their own release in exchange. They offered to bear the expense of a messenger to the rebel officer at Deer Creek, with this proposition. The Union officer at Helena accepted the proposition, and the messenger was sent off. It was arranged that he should stop over at our house both on his way down and back. Upon his return, he stopped overnight, and the next morning proceeded on his way. When he had gone about five miles, he saw a flatboat at a landing, on which were people drinking and having a merry time. He stopped and went aboard, and, in joining the carousal, he soon became so intoxicated that he was unable to go on with his journey. Among those present was one Gilcrease, a cousin of the McGee's, who recognized the man as the messenger in this important business, went to him, and asked him for the letters he carried. The fellow refusing to give them up, Gilcrease took them from him, and at once sent to our overseer for a reliable man by whom to forward them to the commandant at Helena. The overseer called me up from the cabin to his room, and told me that I was to go to Helena to carry some important papers, and to come to him for them in the morning, and make an early start. I left him, and went back to my cabin. MY THIRD EFFORT FOR FREEDOM I made up my mind that this would be a good chance for me to run away. I got my clothes, and put them in an old pair of saddlebags, two bags made of leather, connected with a strip of leather, and used when traveling horseback for the same purpose as a satchel is used in traveling in the cars. 
I took these bags, carried them about a half mile up the road, and hid them in a fence corner, where I could get them in the morning when I had started on my trip. Friars Point, the place to which I was to go, was about fifty miles from the farm. I started early in the morning, and after I had gone twenty-five miles, I came to the farm of William McGee, a brother of the madam, and stopped to change horses. I found that William McGee was going in the morning down to old Master Jack's, so I took one of their horses, leaving mine to use in its place, went right to Friars Point, delivered the letters to a man there to carry to Helena, and got back to William McGee's farm that night. I made up my mind to go with William down to Panola, where Madam was, to tell her about Boss being captured. The next morning he started, and Gibson, his overseer, and myself accompanied him. He questioned me about the capture of Boss, what the soldiers had done, etc., and I told him all I knew of the matter. "'Well, Lou,' he said, "'why did you not bring us some whiskey?' "'I did bring a little with me,' I said. He laughed, saying, "'Oh, well, when we come to some clear water we will stop and have a drink.' Then I said, "'Mr. Smith will look for me tonight, but he won't see me.' I'm going to tell the madam that boss is captured. Hey, ho, he said. Then you are running away. I replied, Well, I know Miss Sarah don't know boss is in prison. We traveled on, all three of us, stopping at intervals to be refreshed. After two days, we arrived at Panola. Our journey was a tedious one. The streams were so swollen in places that we could hardly pass. The Tallahatchie we had to swim, and one of the men came near losing his horse and his life. The horses became tangled in a grapevine as we were nearing the shore at which we aimed, and the current being very swift, we were carried below the landing place. But finally, we got safely ashore, McGee landing and we following. Reaching Panola wet and weary, I conveyed to Madame the story of her husband's capture and imprisonment, a rumor of which had already reached her. The next morning was Christmas, and a number of the family had come to spend it together. They had heard that McGee was captured and in prison, but now, as I told them every feature of the affair in detail, they grew excited and talked wildly about it. Among those who came were Dr. Dandridge and his wife, Blanton McGee and his wife, tim oliver and his wife all these women were daughters of old master jack mcgee and sisters to the madam mrs farrington and old lady mcgee were already there these reunions on christmas were a long-established custom with them but the pleasure of this one was sadly marred by the vicissitudes and calamities of the war a shadow hung over all the family group they asked me many questions about boss and, of course, I related all I knew. After I'd been there three days, they started me back with letters for Boss. When I left, it was near night, and I was to stop over at Master Jack's farm fifteen miles away. It was expected that I would reach Friars Point on the third morning, thus allowing me three days to go sixty miles, but I could not make much headway, as the roads were so heavy. The understanding was that I was to deliver the letters to the same gentleman at Friars, to whom I delivered the others, 
for forwarding to boss at helena i was then to go straight to the farm at bolivar and report to smith the overseer but after i had got about four miles away i concluded that i would not go back to the farm but try to get to the yankees i knew i had disobeyed smith by going down to the madam's to tell her about boss because he told me not to go when i spoke to him about it and now if i went back i feared he would kill me for i knew there would be no escape for me from being run into the bull-ring and that torture i could not think of enduring i therefore stopped and taking the bridle and saddle from the horse hid them in the corner of a fence in a cornfield then i went into the woods the papers which i had were in the saddlebag safe the place where i stayed in the daytime was in a large shuck pen a pen built in the field to feed stock from in the winter time this pen was on dr dandridge's farm and the second night i worked my way up near the house knowing all the servants i was watching a chance to send word to the coachman alfred dandridge that i wanted him to tell my wife that i was not gone i went down to his cabin in the quarters and after a short time he came i was badly scared and my heart was heavy and sore but he spoke comfortingly to me and i was cheered somewhat especially when he promised to see matilda and tell her of my whereabouts he gave me some food and hid me away for the night in his house i kept close all the next day and at night when all was still alfred and i crept out and went to old master jack's the distance was not great and we soon covered it alfred went in and told my wife that i was outside and wanted to see her she came out and was so frightened and nervous that she commenced sobbing and crying and almost fainted when i told her in low tones that i was going to try to get to memphis and that alfred was helping to plan a way to this end the rebels occupied both roads leading to memphis and i was puzzled to know how to reach the city without coming in contact with them two days after i had talked with my wife the rebel troops who were camped on the holly springs road left for some other point my friend alfred found this out and came and told me the encouraging news the following night i went to old master jack's and told my wife that the way now seemed clear and that i was going at once i was bent on freedom and would try for it again i urged my wife not to grieve and endeavored to encourage her by saying that i would return for her as soon as possible should i succeed in getting to a land freedom after many tears and blessings we parted and i left uncle alfred going with me some three miles as i was not acquainted with the road when he left me i went on alone with gloomy forebodings but resolved to do my best in this hazardous undertaking whatever might happen the road passed over hills and through swamps and i found the traveling very wearisome i had traveled some hours and thought i was doing well when about one o'clock in the night i came up out of a long swamp and reaching the top of a hill i stopped for a moment's rest raising myself to an erect position from that of walking inclined by reason of weariness and the weight of the saddlebags thrown across my shoulders the weather was bad a heavy mist had come up and it was so dark that i could hardly see my way as i started on a soldier yelled at me from the mist 
Halt! Advance and give the countersign. I stopped immediately, almost scared out of my wits. Come right up here, said the soldier, or I'll blow you into eternity. I saw at once he was a rebel soldier. I knew not what to do. This place where I was halted was Nelson's farm, and the house was held as headquarters for a company of rebel soldiers known as bushwhackers. While they belonged to the rebel army, they were, in a measure, independent of its regulations and discipline, kept back in the woods, ready for any depredation upon the property of unionists, any outrage upon their persons. The soldier who had halted me took me up to the house, and all began to question me. I told them that I had been sent on an errand, and that I had lost my way. The next morning I was taken about a mile away, down in the swamp, over hills and through winding paths, till at last we came to the regular rebel camp. I was in great fear and thought my end had come. Here they began to question me again, the captain taking the lead. But I still stuck to my story that I had been sent on an errand and had lost my way. I knew that this was my only chance. They tried to make me say that I had come from the Yankees as they were in camp near Holly Springs. They thought the Yankees had sent me out as a spy. But I said the same as at first, that I had lost my way. A soldier standing by said, Oh, we will make you talk better than that. And stepping back to his horse, he took a seagrass halter and said, I'll hang you. There was a law or regulation of the rebel government directing or authorizing the hanging of any slave caught running away. And this fellow was going to carry it out to the letter. I talked and pleaded for my life. My feelings were indescribable. God only knows what they were. Dr. Carter, one of the soldiers, who knew me and the entire McGee family, spoke up and said, You had better let me go and tell Mr. Jack McGee about him. The captain agreed to this, and the doctor went. The following day, old Jack came and steadily refused to consent to my being hung. He said, I know Edmund would not have him hung, ung. He is too valuable, aluable. No, no, we will put him in jail and feed him on bread and water. Too valuable a nigger to be hung, ung. They tried again to make me say that I was with the Yankees. They whipped me a while, then questioned me again. The dogwood switches that they used stung me terribly. They were commonly used in Mississippi for flogging slaves, one of the refinements of the cruelty of the institution of slavery. I refused to say anything different from what I had said. But when they had finished whipping me, I was so sore I could hardly move. They made up their minds to put me in jail at Panola, twenty-two miles away, to be fed on bread and water. The next day was Sunday, and all arrangements having been made for taking me to the place appointed for those whose crime was a too great love for personal freedom, they started with me, passing on the way old Master Jack's, where they halted to let him know that his advice respecting me was to be carried out. The old man called to my wife, Come out and see Lewis. Someone had told her that they were going to hang me, and I shall never forget her looks as she came out in the road to bid me good-bye. 
one of the soldiers was softened by her agony and whispered to her don't cry andy we are not going to hang him we will only put him in jail i saw this change my wife's looks in a minute i said a few words to her and with a prayer for god's blessing on us both we parted and they moved on after we had gone about seven miles we met two soldiers who belonged to the regiment at nelson they said hello where are you going with that nigger the two men in charge of me replied we are going to take him to panola jail why said one of the soldiers there is no jail there the yanks passed through and pulled down the doors and windows of the jail and let all the prisoners out this caused a stop and a council of war was held in the fence corner the result of which was a decision to take me back to old jack mcgee's after we had gotten back there they took me and gave me another flogging to satisfy the madam i was never so lacerated before i could hardly walk so sore and weak was i the law was given me that if ever i was caught out in the public road again by any soldier i was to be shot monday morning i was sent to the field to plough and though i was very stiff and my flesh seemed sore to the bone my skin drawn and shriveled as if dead i had at least to make the attempt to work to have said master i am too sore to work would only have gotten me another whipping so i obeyed without a word end of chapter three part one recording by james k white chula vista